0: How many of you guys out there like scary movies? Be honest with me. Raise your hand if you like scary movies. There's not that many. I'm raising my hand for real. I love scary movies. And my friends are like, why, Kevin? I don't understand. Why would you want to be scared? My wife especially is like, I don't get it, Kevin. Why would you want to be scared? Well, here's here's my feeling. When I watch a comedy, if they make me laugh, They did their job, right? They did a good job. The storyteller made me laugh. They made me giggle. The comedy was successful. If I watch a romantic movie, you know, with my wife and they're sappy and I'm getting all the feels and I'm like, oh, honey, you're my number one bunny too, you know? They succeeded because they got me to feel the feels. So there's just something to me about a scary movie that just makes me like, Where my skin's crawling and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out because I know it's not real, but if they can get me scared, they did their job. Because honestly, there's a whole lot of really cheesy, not scary movies out there. So I get kind of impressed if the director can do their job. It's just another feeling. And again, I know it's not real. So I can I'm one of those people that can go to sleep at night and and forget that happened. I don't. I don't think that you know. There's anybody coming out of my television with a ring, or, you know, I don't feel like Freddy's gonna get me with his claws. It's just not really my thing. I'm not scared. So that's why I like scary movies. Okay, now you know something new about Kevin. I do not like to be scared in real life, though. <laughs> I don't know if there's any of us that really enjoy fear, unless we're total masochists. Why would you enjoy fear? Fear is one of those emotions that we all hate and we try to avoid. And that's why so many people don't like scary movies. We don't like fear in real life. And this world we live in has a whole lot to be afraid of. I mean, we've got disease, we've got death, um, war. There's things going on in politics that we don't like and nobody can agree. There's a whole lot that we don't know about what's going to happen in this world and what's going to happen in our lives, that they're, that we can get really fearful. <coughs> fear can get us really, I would say, crippled. There have been times in my life when I've been so anxious or fearful that I've been crippled and could not act, it felt like. Even more than that, though, what we're going to see in this story and what I think we're all going to be able to relate to is that fear can cause the believer to doubt what Jesus has said and to doubt who Jesus is. And that's not okay. Luckily, Jesus says there's an antidote to fear. In Mark four thirty five through 520, which will be our section of Mark we're going through today, we're going to find out that faith fights fear. Faith fights fear. We know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We know who. What the Lord Jesus Christ has said. And we can trust in those things. Through faith, we can conquer fear. Now, unfortunately, this text does not teach us that Jesus will take away all the difficulty, all the adversity, all the storms of life from you. But what it will teach you is that throughout the midst of all those fearful things, he is Lord and we can trust him. So let's check it out. Um, I'll have the text up on the screen. You Turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter four. If you've got your Bibles, let's see. Uh, there's two stories and that will kind of share the same truth today. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd. They took him with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him on that day. On what day? Well, if you weren't here last week or you're just joining us in our series, Jesus had just finished a massive uh, preaching session. Uh, it was likely a day or more of, of solid teaching. And he gives the disciples the plan for what's next. We go to the other side of the sea now. That is essentially how you can literally translate the Greek. We are going to the other side of the sea. It's happening, um, which is a clue to the passage. Don't skip over this little statement. We're going to the other side. Jesus' word is trustworthy, and it's sure. We're going to find that out. It's something that we can put our trust in, and when Jesus speaks, we can listen, and we can know it's going to happen. And I'm guessing when the disciples first heard Jesus say it, there was not really any questions in their mind. We're going to the other side. And they're like, yeah, Jesus said we're going to the other side. We're going to the other side. And then there was no doubt that that was actually going to happen. But spoiler alert, some things are going to happen that make some doubt creep in as to whether that's really going to happen. And Mark describes it this way. He says, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. <coughs> you might remember that Jesus had to preach from the boat because there were so many crowds, so much, uh, many people who want a piece of Jesus that he had to get into a boat so he wouldn't be trampled and preach from the boat. So now he says, uh, let's go. And when I first read this uh, this week, I, I thought to myself, why in the world does it say they took him with them in the boat just as he was? What does that mean? Just as he was. And As I studied it out, what I found was that essentially it's it's that action packed Mark thing where it's like this happens immediately. This happens immediately. This happens. And what John was trying or John Mark was trying to stress was that Jesus didn't get to go home and have a meal. He didn't get to go shower He didn't get a nap. It's like immediately from one thing to the next. So John Mark, as our author, is trying to kind of stress that this has been a lot of action and sweaty and tired and probably hungry. Jesus is going to the next action. So that's why it says just as he was. Um, Interestingly enough, though, even though he's leaving the crowds, Mark tells us there are other boats with him. So, Jesus is in such high demand that all the people are like, man, we love this Jesus guy. I want to see more miracles. Uh, we want to hear what he's got to say. Who's got a boat? Let's find uh, Jimmy's got a boat. Okay, let's go with Jimmy and let's follow Jesus. So, there's a whole bunch of boats going across. And again, Jesus is just in high demand. This is an insane time of ministry for him. Um, unless you've done ministry yourself or maybe even. Maybe you've been a presenter, or uh, maybe you've taught or been a substitute teacher. You understand that that, that much teaching all at the same time, you get tired. I mean, tired. There are so many Sundays I'm, I'm driving home from church, and I'm just kind of, I realize I'm going cross eyed and I'm not really paying attention to the road, and, and I have to shake myself away because I'm just so exhausted after spending the morning teaching, well, Jesus has done it all day long. As a youth pastor, I would do retreats. Like I said, uh, Andrew gets to go on the the youth retreat with Emily. But I'll tell you what, Emily, at the end of those three days, where she is constantly, 24-7, in charge of these kids, making sure they're where they're supposed to be, Her staff are equipped and being used. Kids are being taken care of. Lives are being changed. They're just getting their food. The junior hires are putting on clean underwear. They're waking up at time. All those things you have to do, at the end of a retreat, you're just done. Done. And that, I think, is kind of the state that Jesus is in. Because look what happens next. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So the scene is this massive storm, winds howling, waves going. Uh, I like the New American Standard, the way they translate it. It was a fierce gale of wind. This is no wimpy storm. This was a monster storm. And the waves were breaking so high, they were going into the boat, and the boat was filling with water, and they were at risk risk of drowning. (laughs) But Jesus is apparently in the stern, asleep on the cushion, just out. Now, again, like I said, I've done ministry, and I get it. I'm also a deep sleeper, so I really get it. When I'm out, nothing's going to wake me up. You know, the dog's pouncing on me. The kids are shaking me. I'm just, I'm gone. And, and I, that's actually a blessing. And the older I get, the more I need that sleep. So it's a blessing. But Jesus is just gone. He's out. And <laughs> the disciples are freaking. And I, in a lot of ways, I can't blame them because this is a bad storm. It, it, and the waves are filling up the boat with water. And boats that are full of water don't float. So there's this big chunk of me as I read the story. I'm like, I, d- I don't want to blame the disciples for, for waking up Jesus. and I mean, teacher, don't you care? We're going to die. But the question itself does betray the fact that they do need to be blamed some. Um, their hearts aren't in the right place. And I I think we're going to learn from them because so often I am them and you are them. So a couple things I want us to note. First of all, they call him teacher. It's not wrong to call Jesus teacher. He was their teacher. He was their rabbi and he was a great teacher. However, that's not all he is. He's so much more than just a teacher. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the Lord of those waves and that wind. He is the Lord of these men. He is an authority over all. And I think that lesson is one that Jesus is going to teach them really quickly in this story, and even in the next, is that he is Lord, not just teachers. So again, I don't think it's wrong But I do believe that the beginning, the end, and everything in between of discipleship is making Jesus Lord. (laughs) It's giving him that position of authority because he's already got it. Secondly, uh, I want to note what they say to him when they say, do you not care? That's kind of a big ouch. It's a brutal accusation that they make against Jesus in their fear. I don't think it's okay. Do they really think that Jesus doesn't care about them just because things are going wrong? That's a big ouch. Thirdly, they're convinced that they're perishing. I'd say ouch again because Jesus already told them we're going to the other side. And they've seen his power on display over and over and over. And yet they think Jesus' power is too little to save them from this natural disaster-level storm that they're in. Again, I want to have some pity on these guys. If, like, if you've ever been in an earthquake or uh, an out-of-control hurricane or tornado, those kinds of things, you realize just how out of control and puny you are, and they rattle you to the core. And yet, when we look at the majesty of Jesus, that's what we should be doing. And we should be trusting in his power. So, like I said, I think we can learn from these guys because I think we are these guys. So, first of all, do you just think of Jesus as a great teacher? Or do you really give him lordship of your life? Do you call him Lord and master and the one that rules over me? I think there are people who sit in Christian churches And they think Jesus was a really good teacher. He had some really good things to say. But they deny his lordship. They deny even his deity. Those people don't know Jesus. They haven't experienced him. They haven't placed their faith and trust in him. If you think Jesus is just a good teacher, consider the fact that this good teacher claimed many times to be God. Any teacher who falsely claims to be God is not good. And you shouldn't put your trust and faith in him. But he was God and is God in the flesh. So we must move from saying Jesus has good things to say to saying Jesus is my Lord and he's the one I'm putting all my trust in. And I'm going to give him mastery over my life. It is incredibly important. We're not on the discipleship path if we haven't given him lordship. Second thing, in the middle of your difficulties, of your painful trials, of those things that are hurting you so deeply right now, are you asking such questions as, Jesus, don't you really care? Do you even really care, Jesus? I admit I've been there before. But that's been a sinful place. I've been at that place where I have, in the midst of my pain and misery and agony, questioned whether God really cared about me. We can't stay in that place. That's the wrong place. He cares so very much. Thirdly, when the storms are raging, do I really believe that Jesus is powerful enough to deliver me? Or even more, do I believe Jesus is powerful enough to sustain me without delivering me? If all my prayers are simply, Lord, take away this difficulty, take away this pain, take away this burden. I haven't really put my trust in the all-powerful Savior. Even more, if I can pray, Lord, glorify your name and mature me and do something amazing in the middle of this trial, and I trust you. There's lordship. We're not just asking him to be our Santa Claus and give us our every wish. We're now entering into relationship with God and believing his power can take us through that cancer. Not just deliver us from it, but can do amazing things in the midst of that cancer, during that heart condition, If I never, ever, ever get better from this disease, if I never improve my position in life, if I never get married like I want to, if I never get that promotion that I want, God can still be glorified and he's still Lord. There's faith. There is faith. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the storm ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In, a, in this beautiful and powerful way, Jesus does deliver them from the trial this time. He shows who he is. He shows that he can be trusted. He awoke, and it says he rebuked the wind. I like that. (laughs) He's like, wind, knock it off. I I mean, he did. He rebuked it. I've got uh, a one-year-old puppy. She gets rebuked a lot. She's a big 65-pound lap dog, bulldog, and she just doesn't even know her own strength and her own power. She wants to obey badly, but she's too excited to do it. There are so many times I've got to rebuke her. It really, uh, you can translate peace, be still, literally, be muzzled and stay muzzled. That's what made me think of my daisy dog. Like when she's barking at the FedEx man and this poor guy is pissing his pants. And I'm like, no, she's really friendly. I promise she's never bitten anyone ever. She's wonderful. I promise. And they're like, no, I'm not getting out of my truck. I don't care how many Amazon packages you have. I don't want to do it. I I have to rebuke her. It's like, be muzzled and stay muzzled. That's Jesus' words to the wind. So cool. Now, it's also a double miracle because, you know, it, if wind just stops, waves keep going for quite a while. They don't just immediately stop, but it says that it was like glass here. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. So this is a sweet double miracle that, that, that Jesus does. Jesus had spent so much time with these disciples of his those I mean he taught them he He showed them his power and then he got to this place where he was letting them be tested and they failed these winds and these waves these were all under the control of the Lord of the universe this didn't surprise Jesus they didn't catch him off guard but they failed their test and, and tests are really good the students are like, no, they're not, Kevin. What are you talking about? No, tests really are good. They measure what you've learned, and they help you identify the things that you haven't learned. Those concepts, those, those things that really you, d- you haven't grasped it yet. You haven't been able to apply your knowledge or you haven't gained the knowledge. When you take the test, the teacher has designed that so that you can go, oh, that's where I need some work. I don't know how to do that yet. I'm doing great over here, not so great over here. Tests are good. Jesus here gives his disciples a test of their faith, and they fail. Now, um, what he's about to do, I think, is really amazing. He, he, he gives them grace, and he gives them truth. You, you, you see those things a lot in the New Testament, grace and truth, grace and truth. Um, and I think uh, as American Christians— most of us are better at grace than truth. And I think that's to our chagrin. I think that's to our detriment. Uh, let me let me explain what I mean. Um, many of you guys are in mentor-type relationships with somebody. You're the, you're the mentor um, to the young disciple who you're bringing up. So maybe you're a kids' church teacher. Uh, a lot of us are parents, and so we're mentoring our kids in the Lord. Um, we may be a small group leader and we've got younger Christians in our small group. Uh, Each of us, I believe, should be mentored and should mentor another. I think that's just wisdom. I think it's a biblical model. But for those of us who are in mentor relationships, make sure that you give grace and truth. The grace was the miracle that he performed, but now he's going to review the test with his disciples And he's going to give maybe not a rebuke just to the winds, but maybe a rebuke to his disciples as well. So follow Jesus' example. And when you're in that mentor-style relationship, give the rebuke. It needs to happen. I need a rebuke. So you know those under you are going to need it. We all need to hear where we failed if we're going to have any hope of conquering that and being successful at that test in the future. So Here's Jesus' rebuke. He says, first of all, why are you so afraid? And the, the Greek word for afraid or fear that he uses isn't just the typical one. It's a really forceful one that means coward. I mean, why are you guys such cowards? I mean, he, he lays into them. He, he's giving them a tough truth here. Why are you still cowards after all this time with me? And he adds, have you still no faith? That's why I said still. Because Jesus, by saying still in there, is emphasizing that they're still cowards and they're still lacking in faith. And there should have been growth by now. It should have happened. You should be able to pass this test. They should have known who Jesus was. They should have known that his words are trustworthy. They should have. The key word is faith here again. Have you still no faith? You'll notice fear is all over the place in this text, as is faith. This is where we get our big idea. Faith fights fear. According to Jesus in this text, the opposite of fear is faith. What they lacked when they had fear was faith. Those are opposites. So now we know how to fight fear. When the storm is raging around you and I, let me just ask you this. Do we respond with fear? Or do we respond with faith? And when fear does sneak in, because we're still in the flesh, we haven't been glorified yet, we're still struggling, it's still hard. When fear does sneak in, do we respond with faith to battle that fear? This is what Jesus is teaching us here that whatever we're facing, we can know Jesus is in the boat with us and he hasn't gone anywhere. We can know that he has promised us a future. And we can know that he's going to follow through on those things. As far as the rebuke goes, I, I read one scholar who put it pretty bluntly, and it hit me where I lived. He said, Beware of worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and professing your faith in him as the Savior of the world while you blaspheme him. By the complete evidence in your daily life that he is powerless to do anything in and through you. It's possible for me to be a believing Christian, believing in him for my salvation, professing my faith in him and at the same time blaspheme him with my actions when I have no faith in his power. Wow, that one, like I said, hit me where I live. I don't want to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. I want people to see the faith that I have in the midst of fearful things and go, whoa, how is he so calm? And to be able to say it's because I know in whom I have believed that he is able to keep me. I want to be able to say that. I want people to be able to see faith in action. Interestingly enough, verse 41 says their response is, to their rebuke, and to Jesus' miracle is, and they were filled with great fear. Ah! (laughs) I hope part of this is the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. They're still scared. They're still not sure what to think of this situation because they say, who is this? That even the winds and the waves obey him. (coughs) But I'm hoping, like I said, a little bit of of it is just recognition of his power and worshipful fear. So the second story that we're going to look at today is classic because it's out of the frying pan and into the fire, and they're going to go right into another test. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. So this area, uh, Gerasenes, is is most likely Gentile land. Uh, From what scholars deduce as far as geography and who they believe lived in this area, uh, most scholars believe it's Gentile. Also, uh, in a little bit, we're going to see some pigs, and pigs and Jewishness doesn't mix. No bacon. In, in in Israel, um, I love bacon, and praise God, He set me free, and now I can have bacon. But there was no bacon for uh, for for the uh, the Jews of that time, and uh, there's a couple other little pieces of evidence. But I I do think this is probably a Gentile land, which is important because most of Jesus' ministry is among the Israelites, among Jews, and to Jews. But there's a, a few key stories where he steps out. And this is John Mark, our author, kind of giving a nod to God's plan to save all of mankind, even us Gentiles, through Jesus Christ. So um, Jesus and his disciples, they get into this Gentile land and they're instantly greeted, but by something out of a horror movie. This man was completely demonized. Uh, Look at the description. He lived among the tombs. It wasn't like these were open tombs. It would smell. There would be decaying bodies, rats. I mean, this is not this is not a nice place. He had supernatural strength. Um, not even chains or shackles could bind him. He was breaking metal uh, handcuffs and shackles and stuff. This guy was supernaturally strong. Uh, he gets even more gris grisly as he goes on. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. So not only living in the tombs, uh, among the dead, rotting corpses, but nobody could subdue this guy. He he was so powerful. And and day and night, he would wander around screaming out. This is like shrieking, uh, the, the word that's described here. Imagine the most maniacal, demonized, scary shriek ever, and he would cut himself with stones. Now, I don't know about you, but scary movies on the screen are one thing. When something like that is right in front of me, if I was a disciple, I would be freaked out. I mean, they're still rattled from thinking they're about to die and seeing Jesus control wind and waves in a way that nobody can but they just saw it, and he just did, to seeing this demonized man who is cutting himself, bloodied, dirty, smelly, really strong, and you can't stop him from doing what he's going to do. I would be afraid. It's the Incredible Hulk. I'm not, I mean, seriously. Like, nobody could take this guy on. You couldn't defend yourself. If he was coming after you, he was coming after you, screaming and shrieking. This is one of the scariest scenarios, I think, that is painted in the Bible. But look what the demon has to do when he sees Jesus. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Oh, daddy. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Again, with a loud voice, he cries out. This is is demonic shrieking. What have you to do with me? I mean, I can't even give it justice, I'm sure screaming at Jesus. A couple things that we can uh, observe here. One, this is another instance that John Mark writes about in his gospel of a demon with supernatural knowledge of Jesus, who he was, even his name. Uh, some scholars believe that since um, naming a demon uh, that is possessing someone is, is common in Scripture, that there's some sort of power maybe that the person uh, gains by knowing the name of the demon. Uh, and so what many have postulated is that this is the demon almost trying to get some sort of control over Jesus because he knows his name. But at the same time, he knows he's the son of the Most High God. So even by naming Jesus, he can't do anything about it. So all he can do is beg not to be tormented. Secondly, it's another instance that where a demon seems to know Jesus better than his own disciples. <laughs> I mean, this is the answer to the question in 421. Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They're asking who Jesus is. This demon knows exactly who Jesus is. He is son of the most high God. This, uh, this is a third observation. Son of the Most High God, the way it's written is the Gentile way that you would usually talk about Yahweh or Elohim. It's not the Jewish way. So another clue to, to why we think this is probably ministry among Gentiles. But uh, fourthly, last thing to point out, he says, do, do not torment me. Remember that demons know their fate. Satan knows his fate. Uh, he will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. When his time is up, his time is up. It's interestingly enough, Mark says, for he was saying to him. And that was another thing that, like, that's an interesting way to phrase it. What do you mean for he was saying to him? What seems to be going on here is this chaotic exchange. Again, demons see Jesus from afar running towards them. Disciples, there's no way they could defend themselves even if they, you know, tried. But the demon falls before Jesus and is screaming stuff at Jesus in this shriek. Jesus is commanding him. It's like they're probably talking over each other. And Jesus probably had to say it more than one time. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And I don't know exactly how it went down. But there's a lot of chaos in this conversation. Jesus asked him then, what is your name? And The demon had to tell him it's Legion. This is an interesting term, Legion. Uh, is a term for a Roman company of soldiers. Anyone know how many soldiers that was? 6,000, I believe. But you're, but yeah, you're on the right track. 6,000? Is that how many demons are in this guy? It, it's entirely possible. In fact, we're going to find out there's 2,000 pigs that get afflicted in just a second. So my guess is there are between 2,000 and 6,000 demons in this one guy. Insanity. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Again, they, they know their time is going to come at some point. They're hoping that Jesus isn't here to torment them now. <coughs> now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This scene has always baffled me. That's just, I mean, that's my honest truth to you. Let's note a few things that, that are going on here. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why they want to go into pigs. I'm not 100% sure why Jesus lets them. Uh, there's a few things I think that are interesting. One is this this legion of demons were were tormentors to this man. They tormented this man. He, he likely didn't sleep. He, he's screaming all the time. He's cutting himself. He's an outcast from society. I mean, this man was tormented. Well, the tormentor, which is legion, is now the tormented. That's how Jesus brings liberty to human beings and punishment to these demons. Secondly, I think it's interesting that the goal of Satan is exposed in this story. The goal of Satan is to steal, kill and destroy, period. There are people that mess with um, the demonic that mess with the occultic and things like that because they think, oh, maybe I can get some power or, or some special tricks or some authority here on earth. What they don't realize is the demons and Satan's, their entire goal is to steal, kill and destroy. In fact, I believe they were trying this, this legion of demons were trying to get this man to commit suicide. That's why they was cutting himself so often. There goal was the destruction of this man, not to make him more powerful or anything like that. The destruction of this man. That is Satan's goal. Jesus' goal is also exposed in this story. Jesus' goal is liberty and life and freedom. And he's the one that has power and authority over Satan. So in this kind of microcosm of the battle between good and evil, Jesus gives the preview into the fate of Satan and his demons through this story. Again, why pigs? There's a couple guesses. Again, pigs are unclean to a Jewish person, so not a big loss. <laughs> and they're thinking, well, uh, pigs. Jesus doesn't. They're unclean to Jesus. Maybe he'll let us go over there. Uh, others have postulated maybe they're uh, these were Jewish herdsmen, uh, not Gentile herdsmen, and if a Jewish person was herding pigs, they were in violation of the law and deserve to be punished by losing whatever 2,000 pork bellies are worth. Um, We track that, you know, the NASDAQ, the Dow, we need to know what pork bellies are worth. Um, So there's, there's guesses and all that kind of stuff. I think, again, most of, of what happens is Satan's true agenda is, is exposed. And what does he do to an animal that has no will? and can't resist these suicidal demons, they all they kill themselves instantly. So we instantly get to see what demons and Satan's agenda is. We instantly get to see God. So why the pigs? I don't know. We'll find out in eternity. It's really interesting. I think um, as Christians, we probably fall into one of two camps. Well, let's just say as human beings, I think we fall into one of No, of two camps when it comes to things that are occultic and demonic and dark and witchcraft and these kinds of things. C.S. Lewis really said it well in uh, his book, The Screwtape Letters, um, when he talked about the strategies of Satan demons. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is uh, to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We have to be careful that we don't say, well, you know, the demonic, that's all. That's just kind of a fairy tale. It's not really part of it because it is. It's real. And it's something that we need to understand. But also know that Jesus is Lord over it. We also need to not dabble in those things and think that those things are fun or cute or good or, or walk towards those things. So. I thought that was a good word from from, uh, C.S. The herdsmen fled. They told in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. This response is so sad. The response of the, of the people of this town, they, they rush to see the miracle. They find this man, this demonized man formerly, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, delivered. This could have been the most staggering moment of, of faith. The one who could not be bound has been set free. The power that this Jesus must possess. Everybody should have instantly put their faith in him. But instead, they were all afraid. (sighs) Even as the eyewitnesses describe what had happened in in this this scene, uh, they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. They were either afraid of the Jesus who had this much power Or they were afraid of losing more money. These pigs, again, and their pork bellies were worth something. Or both. I I don't know. But the response of the general public is so wrong. It's fear rather than faith. And they miss. They miss. They miss. And they don't seem to care that this man is sitting there delivered. Jesus cares about this man very much. And the really cool thing is at the end of our story, he commissions the delivered. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus Excuse me, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Uh, Now, Jesus doesn't stay where he's not wanted. Um, He does not force himself on anyone. If anyone desires an eternity without him, he will oblige. Whether out of ignorance, fear, greed, whatever. The people in this region, uh, they've, they've had enough of this prophet. They've had enough of this miracle worker. But one felt altogether different, didn't he? One who had experienced the power of Jesus Christ and his compassion and whose life had been wonderfully transformed. He has the right reaction. He says, I have experienced your mercy. I have experienced your kindness. I have experienced your compassion, Jesus, and I just want to be with you. He's begged that he might be with him. Likely, he said, stay, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, they don't want me. He said, well, then let me come with you, Jesus. Jesus said, actually, no, I've got a different plan. No one had ever shown him such love and compassion. And I'm telling you, nobody had ever seen such potential in this man either. Because Jesus Christ said, I got a plan. I want you to go. Go to your family and your friends first. Isn't this interesting? That's what Jesus says. Go home to your friends. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Many of us are going to have more influence with our friends and family first. That's our first mission field. But then Jesus wants to do even more than that with us. Because look what the man does. He goes all around the Decapolis. Big ten city region. He goes and he just doesn't stop. And there are some amazing studies you could do about this region and uh, missionary journeys that will happen in Acts and in other times where this whole area is just ripe and taken off for Jesus. And I think it's because of what this man did, and I think it's because of this miracle. It's super cool if you study it out, and we don't have that have time to go into it at all right now. But remember what we've been looking at, Jesus' parables with the seeds, one plants, one waters. One gets to reap the harvest, plant, 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 keep planting those seeds. You don't even know the impact you might have. And there was probably times when the de- formerly demonized man was going through and felt like, is there any fruit here? Is anybody here in the gospel? Am I making any difference? Is anyone going to come to faith? And Jesus like, just keep being obedient. Keep doing your thing. And he sprouted those seeds up. It's just just awesome. Jesus says, go home first, but tell people what the Lord has done for you, tell him how much He's done for you. Tell him how much He's done for you. The one thing that I wanted to just point out as well, I, um, a lot of times we feel like our testimony isn't very special. Do you guys want to hear my testimony? You do? Oh, thanks, Peg. Peg wants to hear it. You, you want to hear it? Okay. Um, I was about four years old or so. And uh, it was VBS that we'd been having, and I'd been hearing about Jesus. And I heard that if you didn't believe in Jesus, you went to hell. And it was time to pray with my mom. And I said, Mom, I don't want to go to hell. And she said, Okay, do you want to accept Jesus? I said, Yes. And we prayed. That, that's it. I, I, Well, yeah, yay VBS, yay kids ministry in general. But I I always thought, like, especially as a teenager, I'm like, what a boring testimony I have. It is so lame. Like, I mean, I'd like to tell you that I was a drug addict. And uh, I'd like to tell you that I was a, a pimp. And I'd like to tell you that I was a horrible, horrible murderer. And I'd like to tell you all those things, but I can't because they're a lie. My, my, my testimony feels boring, but it's not. It's not boring in the least. It's amazing. And the filth that was in my heart as a 4-year-old? Is the same filth that's in every heart. It was sin against God. And I was an enemy of God. And the difference between pre-prayer Kevin and post-prayer Kevin, (laughs) pre-faith Kevin and post-faith Kevin, was night and day. It was radical. It doesn't sound that radical to you and I, but it was. So my testimony is powerful and yours is too, no matter what it is. No matter how powerful you think it is, what Jesus tells this man is tell everybody how much the Lord has done for you. That's your job. Your job isn't to make them respond. Your job isn't to make the seed grow. Your job is to tell everybody how much the Lord has done for you. Is that good? And is that kind of freeing, too? (laughs) You don't have to be the most polished preacher. You don't have to have a fancy testimony. Just tell people what the Lord's done for you. And this man has a powerful, powerful ministry. This is a phenomenal text, you guys. If you can just keep that in your brain for the rest of your life, faith fights fear. Faith fights fear. Faith fights fear. Because there's a lot to be afraid of. I mean, all of us have so many fears. The fear of rejection. People won't like us, that we won't be loved, that we won't find a spouse. Whatever it is, fear of failure. I I, I may never have that job I want. I may never be the person that I want. People might not like me. I might let my family down. Fear of of sickness. Man, there's so many diseases out there. Cancer's probably going to kill every one of us at some point. Fear of, of death not even just for you personally, but a lot of us, one of our biggest fears is losing a loved one. And could we cope? Could we go on? Could we trust that Jesus is in the boat? And he would be with us even if we went through that most difficult thing. The fact is, Jesus is Lord. Period. There's nothing like him. There's no power that's even close to him. And there is nothing I'm going to face. Or am facing now that it compares to his strength. But am I living like it? Am I living in faith or am I living in fear? And believer, if you are fearful right now of anything, believe and make a choice that faith is the cure for that. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's let's pray.